If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Let me end on the NA. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. As always, I have my beautiful co-host, Miss Kimberly Dillon. Welcome, Kimberly. Hello, hello. And I'm super excited to have the star of the Joe Rogan show, <laughs> Dr. Mike Hart. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for asking. I was super, uh, super happy to, uh, to be here today. Um, you see, I slipped in the Joe Rogan. That's that's so I can get uh, more audience members because in the algorithm it'll say Joe Rogan's name, and they can kind of see. Oh, all right, this is related to Joe, but no, I know that's smart. Smart, do. <laughs> um, so, Mike, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about what kind of medicine do you practice? Sure. So, uh, I'm a family doctor. I've been uh, you know practicing family medicine uh, for about eight years or so. And, um, you know, while I do still prescribe, you know, several uh, pharmaceutical drugs, um, you know, I definitely kind of lean more towards like the natural side or alternative health, I guess you could say. So um, I've been prescribing cannabis since 2014. That's probably uh, it takes up like the bulk of my, of my practice. Um, but I also um, have been prescribing ketamine now for just over a couple of years. Um, you know, again, you know, again, ketamine is a pharmaceutical drug, so it's not something you can just like you know, pick up from the ground. Uh, and then I also practice uh, quite a bit of uh, hormone replacement therapy for both men and women. So, you know, guys who are, you know, low in energy, getting a little bit older, looking for TRT, and then women going through menopause, experiencing hot flashes. Um, you know, I do quite a bit of work with that. So that's kind of like the the bulk of my practice, but I still do a little bit of like, you know, standard blood pressure, diabetes, that kind of thing as well. So um, to ha- have a real good mix going on. So I, I like doing it because, uh, you know, just sticking to one thing is just too boring for me. So, you know, why not just kind of open it up and do it, do it and prescribe a bunch of medicines. Kimberly, did you notice when, uh, I know some of the audience can't see, but did you notice the mic looked exactly like he looked right at me when he said, when you're, you're getting older and your hormone levels start to decrease and all that stuff, he's looking right in my eyes. You caught that, right? That's why he slipped it. <laughs> it was definitely for you and not for me. No, of course. <laughs> you look at you when he was talking about menopause and all that other stuff. You're just staring at me with that hormone stuff. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I'm excited because that's a lot of different modalities that have a lot of overlap. So I'm sure that's what this conference is going to be about is like the yeah. overlap of all those. But like, uh, that's really exciting because that's kind of what the future of medicine is. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. It's, it, it's, you know, I just had a conversation. I, I came back from the Canapharma conference and I'm not going to mention the, the doctor's name. And it's, it's a doctor that has uh, been in the cannabis industry, I would say. It was an MD for many, many years. But it's like the blinders, you only know this and that's it. And there is no other, the, the mind is so close to anything else. When I try to talk about, what about psychotropics? What about microdosing? No, it was just shut off completely. And I think what you're doing, is the future. It's it's really truly functional, integrative, because you're looking at all these different things and and you know, just treating something that hurts doesn't really work on preventive medicine. And I, I didn't ask you where you grew up and where you're from yet, but I, I will in a second. But I think that in the United States at least, there's a system that's set up, as we all know, to be able to get you on the pharmaceutical teat and keep you there for a long time. So you keep getting all these, oh, this hurts. We have a pill for that. Well, this pill causes this. We have a pill for that. So what are your thoughts on that, Mike? Uh, well, you know, I think we definitely need to kind of, you know, get away from that. And like, while it is good to have, you know, like specialists, um, you know, it's always good to also, you know, learn about new medicines. Like there's a reason, you know, why we do have specialists and you do have to, um, you know, be highly trained and highly skilled in one area of medicine in order to be able to practice like a certain um, level of medicine, right? So I'm a family physician. So for me, it's a little bit easier, I guess, to maneuver because, you know, family docs are kind of supposed to know, you know, a little bit about everything. So, you know, that's what I, you know, really try to do. And, and also too, I mean, you know, people will say that, you know, cannabis is like, holy grail, like all I need is CBD. And for some people, you know, that may be true, but for other people, you know, it's not true. You know, it's because I have lots of people who are on cannabis but they're also on ketamine. And I have some patients who are, you know, using cannabis, they're also using ketamine and they need hormone replacement therapy. So, you know, I think that uh, we definitely need to, you know, look at um, all types of medicine, all avenues of medicine and not just kind of, you know, get centered in on one. And yeah, your comment about, you know, uh, psychotropics, you know, I'm not really surprised, um, you know, unfortunately, like I think there are a lot of doctors out there who are, coming around a little bit maybe on, on psilocybin and, and I am trying to work with the government right now to get one of my patients approved for, for psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. Um, but, you know, I don't think it should be this difficult. Um, you know, I think that, you know, if you're an, uh, an adult and, you know, you've made um, and, and you've done your research, you should be able to, you know, chat with your physician and have something that you've researched, you know, offered to you, given the fact that it does have, you know, quite a bit of research behind it. And I'm, I'm kind of mostly talking about, you know, psilocybin right now, but there's definitely other psychedelics on the horizon as well. So, you know, I think that we just need to, you know, do podcasts like this, open up the floor a little bit more, you know, get the conversation going. And uh, hopefully that'll, you know, change people's minds and, and kind of just make them a little bit more open-minded. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up treatment-resistant depression because that's one of the, uh, we have a, a mental health test uh, that we just uh, filed a patent on. And that was one of the impetus for doing that because we've been seeing genetic predispositions and even, you know, on the epigenetic front with 
you know, 30% of the population, give or take, having treatment-resistant depression or given SSRIs, they're never going to work for them, but they're still going to experience all the side effects from there and then still get back and trying to address the side effects of a medication that doesn't work for them. And we can clearly see that, you know, psilocybin, as you said, psilocin and, and ketamine for certain people, it's way more effective. And we're still, we're still in the dark ages for that. But I definitely think that the cannabis industry maybe paved the way a little bit for the psychedelic industry. So maybe it's going to be a little bit more accelerated uh, there. But w- what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I think you're, you're kind of bang on. And, and I've had you know, similar conversations with people before. I think that um, you know, for, for some people, and it doesn't necessarily have to be cannabis. So cannabis is a great example, but for a lot of people, you know, they, they, they try something, uh, conventionally, and then they don't get the results that they want. You know, maybe a pharmaceutical, maybe, you know, even as something as like cannabis food guide, and then, you know, they try, you know, a different diet or they try something that's, you know, completely unconventional or goes against what, you know, the, the standard kind of medical narrative is. And then they discover that, hey, you know, what I'm doing is, is working, even though it wasn't recommended by my doctor. And because of that, then it opens up their mind and they start questioning other things. And I think, you know, that's happened with, with cannabis. You know, a lot of doctors and a lot of patients are told that, you know, when, uh, that, that cannabis was never going to be used uh, medically and that people shouldn't use it. And it, was, it only had you know, negative effects. And then, you know, a lot of people start using cannabis. Um, you know, over the past six or seven years when it became more commercially available and when it could be uh, prescribed by um, physicians. And then because of that, you know, I think that both physicians and patients are now are now kind of questioning other things in, in, the, in the medical industry. And I think that's a perfect example. You know, like people are using cannabis now when they weren't using it before. So now they're kind of thinking, hmm, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't think cannabis was good and it was good. So, you know what, I didn't think psilocybin was good, but you know what, maybe it is too. So I think that, you know, they're definitely, I think the cannabis industry is definitely responsible for, um, you know, accelerating uh, the psychedelic movement and maybe even initiating it altogether. Yeah. Because that raises an interesting point. Does that mirror your own journey in the sense of, were you always receptive as a doctor to these modalities? I'd love to hear about your journey into... Um, these medicines or was it something that you too had some resistance and had to like overcome? Um, well, for myself, like, I mean, I had my first joint when I was 12 years old. So I, I kind of knew about cannabis, you know, for, for a long time, but um, I would say that I didn't, you know, use it really medicinally until I was around 26 or 27. So um, at that time I was still a resident. And I remember that uh, I had uh, an emergency room rotation and uh, some of the shifts were starting at like 4 a.m. And uh, I was like, man, how am I going to get to sleep at like 7 p.m. in order to get like eight hours of sleep so I can get up at, at 3 and, and get into the hospital? And uh, I was like, well, I know one way. And that's, so, that's a great order story. Well, so that's kind of how I started using it um, medicinally. You know, again, like, and I'm not certainly not recommending it for people to use it, you know, at at the age that I, you know, first uh, used that. And it wasn't like a chronic smoke or anything throughout my years. Like I was more of like your, you know, typical maybe weekend smoker at parties and stuff like that. Maybe a little bit more when I was um, in, in university, but I wasn't, I was never considered to be like a pothead, you know, per se. I would just kind of like use cannabis 
um, you know, fairly liberally on, on the weekends, but not really like medicinally in any way. Um, but I would say that when I when I used it uh, medicinally for the first time was that time, uh, you know, when I started that emergency room location, I was like, man, I need to get to sleep so I can, you know, get up in, in the morning and, uh, and, and you know, be ready for work. So I used it then and I had amazing success. And then the other thing too is that, you know, when I started practicing, uh, when I started practicing in 2013, luckily cannabis was being able to be prescribed, uh, you know, very easily for Canadians anyway, around 2014. Um, but, you know, during that time, and I mean, we still do have the same medications that are being used. It's more or less uh, trazodone or zopoclone, or I seem to be by far the, the biggest two that people use. And then some people still use um, benzodiazepines, which are, you know, highly addictive. So, you know, benzodiazepines, I really don't think people um, should be using every night. Like, I'm not saying like never, but like, you know, like if you have like a fear of flying and, you know, you need to get it through like a flight. Um, you know, fine. Like you're not going to get addicted to it if you use it, you know, just like once or twice. But if you're using it, you know, every night, you absolutely are going to build up a tolerance to it. So that's it's one of the medications. Um, Zopiclone, which is also known as as imivane, um, gives people a metallic taste in their in their mouth the next day. So you know, a lot of people really don't like that medication. They also find that um, when they use it, they're just a little bit groggy in the morning. And then trazodone. Um, you know, maybe has a little bit less of the side effects than the other two and a little bit less um, in terms of uh, um, danger and getting addicted to it. But still, a lot of people, you know, don't respond well to it because um, it's not just like a sleep aid. It's also used as an antidepressant. And some people do find there are quite a bit of um, quite a bit of side effects with that. And again, sometimes it's just very, very general, like you know, not feeling well in the morning, feeling groggy, feeling a little bit odd in the day, um, like not feeling themselves, not feeling cognitively intact. So, you know, between, uh, so looking at those medications, you know, we don't really, unfortunately, you know, have like the best um, pharmaceuticals for, for treating insomnia. And again, you know, um, I started practicing in 2013, it's 2021 now. And, uh, you know, we basically still use those medications. Like there hasn't really been, you know, a new dominant uh, medication that has, um, you know, impressed me anyway. And, and I don't think, you know, many other physicians as well. So those seem to be the ones that are being used and they all, you know, kind of have uh, their own issues. And, uh, you know, cannabis, um, you know, really doesn't have a lot of the issues that, that I just discussed. I mean, maybe if you take too much THC, you'll you'll feel a little bit groggy um, in the morning. But again, that that can always just be adjusted by dialing back the dose. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. If also, I think if uh, if you have a fear of flying, maybe uh, consume a couple of gummies or some of that instead uh, of uh, your benzo or one of those other ones. That, but the the other thing is, you know, speaking of sleep, like we're we're conducting a sleep study now. And working with Harvard uh, Medical on that, and we're seeing we're seeing quality of sleep. It's not only the length of sleep, the quality of sleep, and it, it changes with the different varietals of uh, cannabinoids and terpenes that people consume. So, if I think uh, my, you just mentioned amount of THC. Well, some people take a lot of THC before they go to sleep, and maybe they sort of pass out. I don't know what whatever the medical uh, terminology of that is, and I equate that to sort of, you know, having a bunch of alcohol and, like, passing out, but your brain is still active. 
So even if you're sleeping for your eight, nine hours, but you're looking at your sleep score, you're like, well, I didn't have a lot of deep sleep. I never hit data. I never had a really restful sleep and you're still agitated. So I think that quality of sleep and, and making sure that you have the right profile of the amount of cannabinoids, the amount of terpenes, which is a more personalized experience. But I think the quality of sleep is really important uh, in addition to length of sleep. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I have, uh, you know, a couple points on that. So um, I'm sure, Elaine, you're, you're probably familiar with Dr. Ethan Russo. Um, so he's, you know, kind of, I guess, one of the godfathers of cannabis. A lot of people, you know, look up to him. He's a very, very respected uh, physician. And, um, you know, he, he said to me once um, that, uh, you know, the, um, the little bit of reduction in REM sleep that may happen with, with, uh, with uh, THC is very negligent. Like this, like some people say that, oh, like if you use a bunch of THC, you're not getting REM sleep. So, you know, according to Dr. Ethan Russo, who's a fantastic resource, not true, you know? And I think that a lot of that comes from the fact that um, THC can be uh, fantastic for people who have nightmares, you know? And people think that, oh, because I don't have nightmares, I'm not getting my REM sleep, but that's not necessarily true. So, you know, very good point that you, that you brought up and then, um, ironically too, you know, just, you know, sleep is actually, uh, for me, it's a really important discussion because, you know, I actually think that sleep is more important than exercise and nutrition. And I'm someone who really takes care of my body. I exercise every day. You know, I follow, I don't, wouldn't, wouldn't say a very strict diet, but I follow, you know, a really solid template that, that I follow every day. I, I watch you, I watch you in your exercise programs on, on, uh, social media. So I see you weight, you're lifting like a monster amount of weights and all that stuff. So I, I, I know you exercise daily. <laughs> well, thanks so much for saying that and for your support. So, yeah, I mean, as, as, as you know, like, and it's, and as witness, you know, I do exercise daily and I still think sleep is, is probably the most important, uh, you know, pillar, Recovery, yeah. you know, exercise and nutrition are, are definitely right there as two and three, but you know, I, I think sleep is most important. Um, but also too, on that note, you know, I, and this, you know, goes a little bit outside of what we were talking about, just sleep in general is like, different people require different amounts of sleep every night and like you and i'm not saying that you don't need eight hours a night like some people probably do need that and maybe you do need it if you had a really really stressful day and you really need to recover but there's lots of people who do well with say like six to seven hours to six and a half hours you know um dave asprey who uh you know the, the bulletproof executive you guys probably familiar with him you know he posted something the other day and i reposted on my story you know saying that you know, there are studies indicating that like six and a half hours of sleep um, is pretty ideal. So, you know, I, I think it's it's important that we discuss sleep. And like I said, it's very important, you know, again, more important exercise and nutrition, but don't get like held up on like, oh, I have to sleep like, you know, eight hours a night. Because um, uh, again, you know, I think he's brilliant, Dr. Matthew Walker, but, um, you know, I think he sort of scared people a little bit at first when he did that podcast with Rogan yeah. a few years ago. Um, I think a lot of people are like, holy shit, like, you know, I only sleep five and a half or six and a half hours a night. Like, you know, this guy's saying that if I don't sleep eight or nine hours a night, I'm going to end up with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or have some type of like neurodegenerative disease. I and mean, just, it's just not true, you know? So, um, you know, whatever amount of sleep you need is, is what you need. And uh, nobody can really, you know, tell you that. Right. No one can really tell you like exactly how much sleep you need. But if you feel great after six hours, then you're fine. You know, you only need six hours. 
If you need, uh, you know, eight hours, then, then you need eight hours, but just don't get like hung up on the number and, and really focus on your performance and how you feel. Yeah. So when you have a quantified health type or using like an aura ring or the trackers, because that's kind of ambiguous in a way to be like, well, figure it out for yourself. Like you kind of have to measure and track. So could you give some tips or like a framework on like how you actually would do that and what you're actually looking for? Cause I think that, and I've told Lynn this, cause I have an idea for a sleep camp in which you literally just go to camp to sleep and then te- people teach you how to do it. And that's all you do in beds. You guys get it. It's a vision. It's going to be sponsored one day by Casper. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I would argue like, that we kind of need to be taught how to sleep because I want to take that information. But I was like, okay, I think I slept well yesterday, but do I know how to, but do I know? So if you could give some tips, that'd be great to hear. Sure. So, you know, objectively, uh, you know, I think, you know, if you want to use like an aura ring or one of those other, you know, products, I think those are, you know, reasonable things to do. I have just never, um, you know, gotten into doing that just because I kind of feel like I, I kind of have a tendency to get, um, like obsessed with like fitness and with, you know, tracking things and stuff like that. That's why I never got like an Apple watch or anything, just because I, I know that I'd be checking my heart rate and everything all the time. Uh, so, you know, if you have that personality, I don't know if, if it's a great thing to get, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's still, I would say that, you know, the best way to, to, to track your sleep um, is, is again, it's, it's, it's subjective. It's just to kind of see how you feel the next day and how, and how you're performing. And I mean, only you can really know that, but if you are looking for an objective measurement, you know, I think, you know, putting them together is a great idea too. So if you get like the aura ring or whatever, you know, sleep tracker that, that you have, um, you know, use that and then also compare it with, with your own subjective feelings and how, and how you feel. So, you know, if you, see that on the aura ring or whatever it is that you're using that, you know, you're getting a certain amount of, of REM sleep or deep sleep. And then that coincides subjectively with you feeling way better than fantastic. You know, you, I think using them together is great, but you know, if you're, if you're in a situation where like, you know, you feel that you're looking at um, your, your REM sleep on this uh, or their deep sleep, if they can you know, measure that on the, on the aura ring and you find that, um, you know, it doesn't really coincide with how you're feeling, you know, um, subjectively. So say, you know, it says that you slept poorly, but you feel great. You know, I think you should be really, you know, um, taking how you feel, you know, much more um, as opposed to, you know, put weight and put more weight into how you're feeling as opposed to what's in uh, the actual um, reading of your device. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And like I said, we're, we're doing the study and the, there are specific biomarkers that measure based on uh, circadian score. But those circadian scores are an average of different people. So when you take that and you take your age, your sex and all that stuff and you compare it and you look at heart rate variability, respiratory rate, uh, oxygen levels, all these different biomarkers, but you have to measure over time. And as Dr. Mike said, I mean, you can get pretty obsessed into it, but if you're looking at a study, you can start creating archetypes. So looking at somebody's genetic profile and looking based on, you know, maybe I need six hours of sleep. Maybe Kimberly, you need eight hours of sleep based on, you know, different profiles and then seeing how you can compare to your own population group, not in general. And then as uh, Dr. Mike said, your epigenetic response, how are you really feeling? 
So when when these the, the studies like that we're conducting, it actually looks at that and asks you, how did you feel before you went to sleep? Well, I felt fatigued or I had some alcohol. How do you feel when you woke up? I feel calm or I still feel fatigued or I feel energized. And it tracks that data over time. And hopefully, we'll start coming up with uh, you know some predictive measures for that are more personalized. But still, your individual response is where, where you're measuring. You track yours? Because I know you track everything. Well, I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> That's our device. <laughs> I track everything. You mentioned uh, the, uh, the uh, genes just because, um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Lynn, but No, no, you got it. Um, there's, I, I'm, I may have this wrong, but I think it's called the DR2 gene. I'm not. DRD2. DRD2, okay. yeah. Yeah, so um, I actually discovered this uh, through Jocko Wilnick, actually, out of all yeah. uh, sources. Because so um, Jocko is because he wakes up at three o'clock in the morning, goes work, Sal. Like, is it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so you know, he he because people have asked him, you know, how can you you know do all this? How do you get up so early? And I guess he's had that uh, that that testing done where he has that gene. So yep. he really only needs to sleep. Uh, I think it's about five and a half hours a night or something like yeah. that. And, yeah. uh, you know, Kevin Hart kind of, kind of joked and went, when Rogan <laughs> brought it up to him that like, oh yeah, you know, I got that. I got that, you know, <laughs> because he seems to, you know, be a super productive guy, I guess. that doesn't necessarily need his eight hours a night. Uh, that's me too. It's DRD2. I think it's heterozygous DRD2, but it's exactly it. But there's, there's a couple, see the whole thing with genes and not, I don't want to hijack the, this, uh, podcast and i'll just make it really brief and but it's not just one and you you know this too there's a combination of things right so it's your bdnf level it's your mis uh one it's drd2 it's a lot of these different things and if you have predispositions to like bruxism and you had a day that you had heightened anxiety but you didn't deal with it you didn't work out or whatever you suppress that so at night you're grinding your teeth and if you grind your teeth you're also not getting your quality of sleep so there's so many different predispositions that are being expressed that you have to look out for with all, so it's it's just not a one-to-one it really is a, a personalized experience but you're absolutely right that drd2 gene has a lot to do with it also um just to get back my my add just kicked in so i i want to introduce the audience to uh dr mike uh where did you grow up Sure. So I'm uh, from St. John's, Newfoundland. So it's on the east coast of Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't leave there. I mean, I went on vacation stuff, but I didn't leave there until I was 21 years old. And uh, I went to Sabre School of Medicine for four years, did most of my rotations uh, through Dalhousie and through Memorial back in Newfoundland. And uh, then I came where I am now to London, Ontario. Uh, I went to Western and did my residency in family medicine. And then uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do, you know, afterwards. Um, so, you know, I just kind of started um, doing some basic family medicine initially. And then 2014, uh, like I said, April 2014, uh, that's when uh, the MMR program kicked in in Canada. So it gave us the ability to prescribe cannabis to our patients you know, fairly easily. And, um, you know, from there, I've, I've mostly just been, again, you know, prescribing cannabis and then learning about other medicines, particularly hormones and, and ketamine and, and prescribing those. So, um, yeah, I haven't been back to Newfoundland, unfortunately, in a couple of years, but uh, I'd love to get back there soon. And I, I would say that I'm your first newfie on this podcast. You're probably right. I get, I get to remember, but you're probably right. So uh, did you have brothers, uh, you have brothers, sisters or? Yeah, I have uh, one brother uh, who lives in Ontario, and and my sister also lives in Ontario. So I guess we all left 
left Newfoundland. Not that we don't love it. We all left. <laughs> you love it so much. You love, I love Philly too, but I love <laughs> live in LA. Not that, not that when you move, the weather is not much better. I just came back from Toronto. It was zero degrees. It was like, it's super cold. And people are like, it's not even cold yet. Like, yeah, no, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's super cold. It's super cold here for sure. So um, I want to... You yeah. guys, I'm going to admit that I actually just Googled Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Now you can learn what, lots about it. I, I think they were growing some uh, cannabis up in uh, Newfoundland, if, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, I think there's... You know what? I, I I forget the name of the um, of the actual uh, LP they have there, but they they definitely have Atlantic Cultivation. I think it's called. Well, I want I want to say yes. You're probably right, Mike. But I'm talking about maybe 20 years ago or or before that. I remember getting some uh, cannabis uh, sent over from uh, a grower that was up in in that area to Philly. I'm just saying. That's awesome. <laughs> there, there was no there was no Compassionate Use Act at that time, but we were still. You know, we needed our medicine for people. Um, I heard you on the Joe Rogan show. I'm going to only mention, I'm sure you get this all the time. No, I just wanna... okay. I, I mean, I have it in my bio for, for a reason. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not offended when anyone brings up Joe Rogan to me. It's... Well, I, I just think you did an incredible job. I mean, not you were so poised, and I'll refresh, and you can kind of tell the audience a little bit about, but you basically, Joe brought you on to have a conversation a debate with a person who was an anti-cannabis. Uh, uh, I don't even know what the background is. I try to look. I forgot the guy's name. I apologize, but you Alex probably, Branson. Yeah, that's right. And I actually reached out to the Alex so many times on Twitter. He's never responded to me. He I sent him art from Twitter. Yeah, he's off Twitter now. You know, because gonna... of his views on the vaccine. Yeah, but it's it, but but Dr. Mike did such an incredible job because. I thought I like put myself in your shoes. I'm like, if it was me, I would think of my voice would elevate at a certain time because he said so many things that had no basis whatsoever. And you were so calm, poised and talked to him in such a respectful way. So I just wanted to commend you on that. You really, really did a good job on that. Well, thank you you know, so much for that. And uh, yeah, it was definitely a little bit difficult not to... Um you know, I guess get upset at certain times, but I didn't want to, you know, kind of lose my focus, uh, you know, during that conversation, especially when, you know, I think at, at one time before you got the Spotify deal, it was like three and a half million views or something. So with millions of people looking at you, you definitely want to show uh, your best self. And usually your best self is when you're able to kind of stay calm and, and stay poised. And uh, I got to credit a lot of that to, uh, I read a lot of Stoic philosophy. And, uh, you know, I definitely think that that kind of um, has really shaped uh, my personality in, in some ways and, and definitely helped me kind of stay grounded and stay calm in situations like that. Yeah, it was great. Uh, let me, I, you mentioned this briefly, but nutrition, and I know that's something that you, you talk about and you, uh, you emphasize a lot. How does nutrition play a role in your overall health? And is there... Is there when people come to you and looking at the entire body and, and looking at a, a, being a you know a functional uh, you know healthcare practitioner? Do you look at what people eat and do you make suggestions? Or do you send them to a dietitian or what is your approach on, on nutrition? I mean, mostly people just kind of you know ask me questions, ask me questions about the the general diet, and uh, you know f- for me, like I have done some 
more or less uh maybe moderate like extreme things in the past like going like keto and stuff like that and like really you know revving up intermittent fasting almost doing like one meal a day kind of thing but for the most part you know um and if you want to do that and if it's working for you great i mean don't don't change anything if it's if it's if it's working for you but it's definitely not necessary you know like the only there's really three things that you need to kind of keep in mind when you're when you're talking about um, nutrition you know people like to you know mystify it and like make all these fad diets and make it really complicated and that there's like certain secrets that if you don't do this you're not going to be able to you know burn fat or put on muscle but you know it's basically three big things you know number one and you know people are some people still get upset at this even though i don't know why it's like calories in calories out matters you know, like that's, that's the most important thing. Like mm-hmm. if you're consuming more calories uh, than mm-hmm. you're expending, then, you know, you are putting yourself in a position where uh, you're going to be putting on weight, right? So, you know, just make sure you have, you know, some type of idea as to, you know, how many calories you're eating per day. You don't have to like track it and be like obsessive, but you should, you know, know roughly the, the exact number. Um, the second thing is, you know, make sure you're getting, you know, roughly a gram of protein per pound per day. Um, and if you're not getting, you know, a gram, like at least 0.7 to 0.8 um, grams per pound, you know, I think 0.8 is a really good one to kind of shoot for. So um, that's number two. And then number three, just try to eat foods that have lots of nutrients in them. You know, so I think if you can do those three things, then you don't necessarily have to you know, worry about too much. You know, you don't have to worry about, you know, being in ketosis. You don't have to worry about, you know, uh, starving yourself for 20 hours or whatever it is that you're doing. Again, not that those things are, you know, harmful in any way. And and if they work for you, you know, fantastic. You know, I've done, you know, keto before and and I found that, you know what, sometimes I do feel better when, when I'm in a deep state of ketosis. I do find that I get a lot of, you know, mental clarity. And for like intermittent fasting, I mean, I do practice it probably most days of the week, but I don't go crazy. I'm probably like 14 to 16 hours a day, um, you know, where, where I fast. And, and so, you know, eight hours or so, well, depending on how much you sleep, but, you know, just we'll say eight hours. And then, uh, you know, I mostly just, just like skip, skip breakfast. So, you know, I might stop eating, uh, you know, around nine or 10 PM at night. Um, sometimes it's eight, it's 8 PM. And then I probably won't eat until 12 o'clock the next day. I mean, the best thing about intermittent fasting is it just frees up your morning, you know, and like that's why I like, and I think that that's why it's, it's one of the diets that is sort of, you know, caught on per se, because um, it's convenient. You know, you're not, you know, uh, doing anything you know, too, too, too crazy. All you're really doing is just, you know, not eating for 16 hours. And then generally speaking, maybe not all the time, but generally speaking, if you're only eating, you know, in an eight hour window versus a 16 hour window, you're probably going to consume less calories. And that's why those people are losing weight. And then also too, I do find that when people initiate a diet and it starts working, then they're kind of more motivated to exercise. But if you start a diet and it doesn't really work, then you may be less motivated to exercise. So, you know, I think it's important to just like keep things simple and just know that, um, you know, you definitely can lose weight without, you know, attaching yourself to these sort of, um, you know, faddish kind of diets. Yeah, I th- really, really good points. Uh, the one thing with the calories in and calories out, uh, I have a couple of things to, to say about that. But the first one is 
doesn't matter the type of calories that you uh, consume. So if somebody sits there and eats like lettuce all day long versus somebody who eats the same amount of calories from, you know, cookies or some of that, wouldn't it be, you know, wouldn't it be a different uh, type of a response within your body? Definitely. So, you know, if you're, if you're eating, you know, um, like low nutrient food again, like it's not just the calories, it's the protein and the nutrients. So eating, you know, like a really low protein diet and you're not Mm -hmm. getting, you know, uh, high quality nutrients in your diet, then, you know, even if you are eating low, uh, low, low calorie, well, if you have low protein, you're going to lose all your muscle mass, right? And especially if you're not strength training. So, you know, if you're in a, in a hypocaloric type of diet, you, know, you definitely want to strength train just to maintain um, your, your muscle mass. So again, you know, um, you know, like I said, like that's sort of, you know, definitely the pillar in terms of, you know, whether you're going to put on weight or take off weight, uh, but it doesn't tell the whole story because if you're, you know, in a caloric deficit, and you're getting a gram of protein per pound, you know, you're probably you're you're you could potentially even build muscle then. Um, but if you are, you know, in, in a in a position where you're, you know, eating a low calorie diet and then you know you're but it's still very low in nutrients and very low in protein, you know, you're gonna lose your muscle mass. So you know, you're absolutely right that you know it doesn't just come down to calories in, calories out. Um, you definitely need to get protein in your diet and you definitely want to eat, you know, a lot of high dense nutrients foods. Yeah. To me, it's like doing things that are inconvenient. You're never going to maintain that. So like I tried, I don't, I don't eat meat. I haven't, I eat fish, but I haven't eaten meat in like 12, uh, whatever many years. But the thing is I tried this lectin, Dr. Gundry's lectin uh, free diet. Okay. Oh my God. You can't eat grains. I can't eat legumes. I can't eat nightshades. I can't eat, and I don't eat meat. So I was starving. And it's like, but it made a difference really, really quickly within my body, but I could not maintain that. So then I went through and I said, all right, what are the main things that I really, I don't like that much anyway that I can cut out and limit that. And get rid of dairy, don't eat tomatoes and uh, sugar. Sugar was the biggest thing. As soon as I got rid of that and I could handle it, sugar was the hardest one to sort of give up. But once I did that, it started transforming my body. Like all the inflammation that you see visible is sort of going away. So, I I mean, the the point I'm trying to make is that maybe you can take bits and pieces of all these different things, create what works for you, and just dump the major like culprits, I, I guess. Yeah, I, I I think that's you know definitely the way to go, and and you know I, uh, I I think that you need to give yourself a little bit of like you know a break sometimes. So like you know for me, you know how I kind of give myself a break is yeah, I'm pretty strict on my own. Like I would say very strict, but if I go out for dinner, you know I go out for dinner. You know I don't I don't necessarily you know always get the healthiest thing on the menu, but um, you know I, I I'm okay with it because I know that you know, 90% of the time I'm, I'm eating very, very well. So, you know, I think that it's always good to, um, you know, I, I, I'm not saying I don't like the word, you know, cheat meal. I, I think it's, I think it's okay to have, you know, a cheat meal and that kind of, you know, regimen um, works for you. But for me, like I just, that's, and then I think that's what works for me. You know, I eat really, really tight and clean when I'm, when I'm on my own, I'm at home, but then, you know, if I'm going out, you know, I'm going out and, and I kind of do apply the same thing to, to working out as well. So, 
yeah, like I'm, I, I work out at least six days a week, a lot of times seven days a week. But if I go on vacation, I'm not going to the gym, you know, so um, that's the way I kind of do it. And I think you do need to, you know, give yourself those breaks or, or otherwise, you know, um, you're just kind of restricting yourself and you're, and, and you're, and you'll make yourself miserable. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I, I tried, uh, you know, I tried to uh, intermittent fast. But what happens is when I take vitamins or supplements in the morning, if I don't eat anything, they start making me nauseous. So I at least have to have berries or something like that in my stomach. I, I don't know if it's the, what the vitamins are made from. I don't know if it's different kinds. But every single time I try, it just doesn't make me feel good. So, you know, that's, that's sort of my, my approach to it. I have a little berries and I think I'll be okay. That's that's good though, and and like the thing is, is like I can't tell you that another doctor can't tell you that. Like you found that out through self experimentation, and I think that that's something that we need that people need to understand is that like you know people want like to go to their doctor, go to nutritionist, go to dietitian, whatever, and just say like, Mm -hmm. hey, tell me exactly what to eat, and it's like I can guide you, I can help you, I can give you some information, but you are going to have to self-experiment yourself and you're going to have to learn, you know, what foods work for you and what foods don't, you know? So, you know, good on you for, 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 for doing that Lane. Yeah. Thank you. I, I read somewhere, or maybe you talked about on social about anti-aging and some of the things that you're uh, focusing on anti-aging. So I'm sure you're familiar with David Sinclair's, uh, you know, work over, uh, uh, at uh, yeah, Harvard. So uh, what are your thoughts on like NAD and some of this stuff or, or I'll, I'll let, I'll give you the floor. You can talk about anti-aging. I don't want to, I don't want to set you up with my own biases, my own thoughts, but uh, give, give the audience some, uh, some of your thoughts on anti-aging and things you can do. Sure. So yeah, I'm really familiar with, with Dr. Sinclair and, and NAD, uh, NAD plus. Um, I actually even have, you know, a, a little IV clinic where I do administer uh, NAD plus for patients. Um, and he talks a lot about NMN uh, and NR, which are both uh, precursors uh, to NAD. And, um, you know, we do have uh, a lot of evidence that, you know, NAD uh, plus does decline with age. And, you know, a lot of the studies have been done um, like more on, on rats and say on humans, but it does seem that when you restore NAD levels in people, they do seem to have more energy. They feel more youthful. They have, you know, less inflammation overall um, and, they, and they start to, to feel better. Um, so, you know, I do believe definitely, you know, in uh, that medicine again, you know, I wouldn't you know, uh, practice it if I, if I didn't believe in it in the same way where, you know, I, I practice cannabis medicine, hormone medicine and, and ketamine medicine is that, you know, I, I definitely do believe, um, in those modalities. Um, you know, other things that, you know, I think have some, some merit to them as well, uh, are the, uh, is, um, resveratrol seems to have, you know, some pretty promising effects. Um, one thing that he talks about a lot is metformin. So, you know, I don't take, um, metformin. I mean, it is a prescription drug. I know he's doing a pretty big trial on it now. And uh, I'm not saying that, you know, it doesn't work. It's just that it, you know, it is a a pharmaceutical drug and it does come with some side effects. Now, metformin is definitely one of the most studied and used drugs, you know, on on the market. I mean, I'm I'm not, you know, uh, sure, but it's got to be in the top 
30, maybe in the top 10 most prescribed medicines. And, and it's been around, I think, since the 60s. So, you know, we've had metformin for, for a long time. Um, so, you know, alternatively, a lot of people have uh, been using berberine um, in place of metformin uh, because, you know, berberine does seem to have a similar mechanism of action. And um, I know there was one study, I think it was from like 2008, so a while ago now, um, it's kind of strange to say 13 years ago is a while ago. That's that's the way research is these days. It's just like, you know, you're not, it's not, it's not recent unless it's the last year. Um, so anyways, uh, berberine is something that does have a similar mechanism of action. Uh, some people also use it for you know, hyperlipidemia, so high cholesterol as well. I think there's even some, uh, some information on, on for uh, depression. Um, so, you know, if you are really, really into anti-aging, um, you know, I, I would definitely think more, you know, berberine than, than say, um, the, uh, the, uh, metformin, but again, you know, you don't have to use either one of these medicines, I think to, um, to, to, to really, you know, uh, age, age well, you know, I don't think they're like necessary. Um, but if they're working for you and, you know, you've done your research, you like what the research says then fantastic. But, you know, the other thing too, is like, we don't have like a ton of like data and clinical trials, like on these things, a lot of it is, you know, speculative. Um, and so I come from a camp and not everyone, you know, may agree with this, but I come from a camp where like, if something has anecdotal evidence and it, you know, causes, you know, very few side effects, then I'm okay with taking it, you know, I'll go ahead and do that. Um, whereas some people, you know, want to make sure that, you know, it absolutely works through, through critical trials, even though it's not harmful to them. So for me, you know, I'm kind of, um, again, you know, more inclined to, to take something if I, uh, if I find that, um, you know, it's effective and it's working uh, and there's some, you know, preclinical data on it uh, if there's no side effects to it. Are there any, uh, I guess, natural alternatives to some of these uh pharmaceuticals that, uh, that, you know, Dr. Sinclair talks about, uh, I, that maybe you can get from food or you can get from supplements that may, that you have seen, uh, that work for anti-aging as well. I mean, the one thing that I think absolutely has been proven over and over again for anti-aging is something that I wish I can't follow just because I find it too difficult. And that's like a low calorie diet. So no matter what, you know, if you're on like a really low calorie diet, um, it does seem to, uh, slow down aging. So that'd be the only, I guess, like real diet that, that would be effective for that. But in your diet, like we talked about in terms of, you know, uh, nutrients, um, you know, getting things like, like berries, like dark berries are really good. Like blueberries are pretty high in, uh, in, um, certain, um, yeah. zinc ionophore. Um, and, uh, you know, making sure that you get lots of, of, uh, of nutrients in your food, I think is really important for, for slowing down the aging process. Um, you know, other supplements I, I would recommend I mean, anything that, you know, boosts NAD. So again, NR and, and NMNN, um, you know, out of what, out of those two, I think it's really hard to decipher, you know, which one would be better than the other. I think they both have their own um, kind of benefits. You know, I think um, Sinclair and, and Dr. Rhonda Patrick may have, you know, more knowledge on that than, than I do when, when comparing the two. Uh, but those are both really good. Um, Transresveratrol has been shown to be really good. Um, uh, we talked about metformin and berberine. 
Um, also, um, oxaloacetate, which is uh, sometimes referred to as Benagene, that's been shown to um, mimic calorie restriction. Um, so, you know, again, anything that sort of like mimics um, calorie restriction seems to be um, favorable in terms of anti-aging. Um, intermittent fasting is is kind of a gray area. I think some of the claims in it may be a little bit overblown in terms of the the anti-aging. I think that if there are anti-aging effects from intermittent fasting, uh, it's mostly just due to you, you know, consuming less calories in that day. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, fasting, um, I'm not really an expert, I would say, on or have all the knowledge or expertise on how fasting affects aging, just because I've seen and heard people say that, you know, you can go into autophagy, which is the you know, recycling of the cell uh, organelles, which is you know linked to anti-aging after like 16 hours. But I've heard other people say you need to do it for three days. So, um, you know, there's no real kind of like magic bullet, but there's definitely a few supplements that, uh, that, that seem to help. And, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that boosting NAD, um, is something that, uh, you know, is, I don't want to say, um, absolutely definitely, you know, must be done, but it does seem to be, uh, maybe one of the more studied areas of, of, of anti-aging medicine. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> great. Yeah. Definitely. Thank you for that because uh, that's, that's been a, a question that's been asked over and over and I w- want to get your thoughts and I, I'm going to ask something controversial that'll probably ban this uh, podcast <laughs> from, from social media. Now, I admire your stance on COVID and some of the things that you've been uh, talking about. You're one of the only doctors that talks about like health in general, not just like, you know, uh, just vaccine and this and that, but uh, maybe you can kind of give the audience uh, your thoughts a little bit because I, I follow you on social, like I said, and I hear that. But what, what are your thoughts? Well, Jack? okay. First of all, I think the vaccine is you know super effective. You know, if you look at the data again, like I know mostly about um, Ontario data just because you know that's where I'm living right now, and uh, not that I'm planning on leaving anytime soon. I don't want to say right now. But, you know, I, it, when you look at the data in Ontario, anyway, it looks like, you know, most people who end up really sick um, are unvaccinated. So, you know, uh, and I, w- I will say that, you know, I have seen the data uh, recently that actually says that the infection rate is actually pretty similar between um, unvaccinated and vaccinated people right now in Ontario. For hospitalizations, um, you're definitely more at risk if you're unvaccinated. If you end up in the ICU, you're way, way, way more likely to to uh, to be unvaccinated. Like yeah. they have it about 16 times more likely. Um, but that being said, yes, we've done a really, really poor job overall uh, in terms of doctors and health officials and discussing anything else other than vaccines. And the big thing that, you know, almost people feel like they're, they're going to start calling me Dr. Vitamin D just because I <laughs> talked about it so much. It, you and Rhonda Patrick too. <laughs> <laughs> the data is so overwhelming on it like it's so overwhelming on it um there's so many studies that indicate that you know the lower your vitamin d level is the higher risk you are for you know severe disease in covid so you know that's something that is just not being uh addressed and and i think that we do need to address it and uh, i know a lot of people right away are going to say you know what recommendations you have in terms of of how much you should take 
So the vitamin D council, uh, you know, I followed them for over 10 years or so now, like they recommend between 500 to a thousand IUs for every 25 pounds of body weight. So, you know, vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin. So A, D, E, and K are fat soluble, whereas your B vitamins and vitamin C are, are water soluble. So you just pee them out. So, you know, when you have vitamin D, then it is going to correlate with your body weight. So I think it's important for people to, to get the, the appropriate amount of vitamin D. Um, you know, start off maybe with 500 IUs for, for 25 pounds of body weight. So, mm -hmm. you know, for 200 pounds and you'll start off with around 4,000 IUs, but you may need to go up to 8,000. And mm -hmm. the only way to, to really know is, is to check your levels. Um, mm -hmm. So definitely vitamin D. Um, zinc too, you know, we, we've really... Hey, Mike, I wanted to ask you really quick, sorry to interrupt you. Like I have vitamin D3 and I know audiences at what is... Which vitamin D? Because I go into the store and it says vitamin D or D3 or is there a difference? Yeah. So there's really, you're not going to see much of a difference there like at all. It's really not a big thing to, to worry about with regards to vitamin D and vitamin D3. Um, you know, just look at, at the IUs that, that you have and then, uh, and then, you know, try and correlate it again to, to the recommendations that, that, I've, that I've made. Um, I think that's the best way to do it. But yeah, you don't need to worry, worry about that. What I would say though, is that um, you know, taking vitamin K2 with vitamin D is, is something that I'm, I'm a big fan of because um, vitamin K2, what that does is it makes sure that the calcium in your body doesn't get deposited into your arteries and, and, and it makes sure that it gets uh, deposited into your bones. And there have been, you know, plenty of studies, this is way, way before COVID or anything, that have shown that vitamin K2 actually decreases all cause mortality. So I love studies like that to show that. Um, you know, uh, systematic reviews and meta-analysis indicating that vitamin D, uh, K2 reduces all-cause mortality from, from, from anything. So, you know, I think that's important to know uh, if you're taking a lot of, of vitamin D. Um, just coming back, yeah, like like zinc for sure has been shown to be low in, in, in patients who, who don't do well with COVID. Um, so that's another really important nutrient. And then... Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to you know it's to talk about you know uh, obesity and being overweight, but you know we we do need to talk about it. So you know they have I'm sure you, you've seen this before too, Len, that you know it, uh, there was um, a study that showed that you know 78 percent of people in the ICU were either overweight or obese. So you know reducing uh, your body weight and managing your body weight and getting it under control. It's definitely something that's going to reduce your overall, you know, risk from COVID. And then, you know, just some some general things like, um, you know, people who who tend to do poor with COVID, um, there are a lot of times when they get it and they and they do poor with it, they're run down. You know, so they're not sleeping well, they're not eating well, and because of that, their immune system, you know, is is isn't up to par. It's not optimal. So you want to make sure you're optimizing your immune system. So you know, a few ways you can do that. You know, make sure you you sleep every night. Uh, again, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the eight hours night, but make sure that when you when you wake up, you're feeling rested. Um, make sure you're getting your vitamin D, which we, which you mentioned. Ultra processed foods can lower your immune system, and so can uh, can high doses of, of sugar. So you know, all those things are really really important. Um, and exercise. So you know, if you if you can do all those things, um, you know, in addition to the vaccine, then for sure you're going to be lowering your risk of, of COVID. And uh, you know, if you did get vaccinated, like don't, you know, stop being healthy. Like don't think that, you know, now you're fully protected. Like sure you did something great and you and you definitely, you know, prevented your your uh your chances of getting severe disease from COVID, but man, like you still got to do all those other things to make sure that you don't get sick. Uh, so, so good. I'm, I'm so glad you said those things because that's, 
that's key. You hit the nail on the head. That's what I've been trying to tell people that over and over, but coming from a doctor, I think eh, maybe it'll sink in. Uh, just take care of yourself. Like, just try to be healthy and you'll lower your risk. All right. So you ready for the tough questions? Let's do it. Studied up. <laughs> All right. So please describe your first experience with cannabis. My first experience. Okay. Uh, my first experience, I think, again, I, I was 12 years old. Uh, I was with my friend and uh, we obviously uh, had a little joint between the two of us. And we went to A&W, I remember specifically. <laughs> and uh, I just couldn't stop laughing. Like that, that was my experience. It was like, like if anybody did anything, I would just start to crack up. Like you could literally, you know, just say your name and I would start cracking up at your name. So that was, that was my first experience that I can, I can really, really imagine. It's so funny because, you know, I, I talk to people and ask that question all the time. You have sort of two different camps. You have the people that had a, a really adverse first experience, like, oh my God, I was freaking out. And I had to go, uh, like my, my old co-host, uh, John Small, he had an experience where he freaked out and it ended up in Nathan's hot dogs in Coney Island and eating and, and he was just ha- having a panic attack. And then you have other people that, like you, I had the same kind of experience that you sort of, you sort of laugh at everything, but it's so hard to catch that again. Like, what was that? I want to replicate that experience. And everybody's like, I want that weed, the one that made me laugh like that. I don't know personal we got to find your dna and then match it up and there's so many different uh, you know uh, cultivars and, and strains right now it's really really hard to do but it's definitely funny um okay uh we're music people uh, as you know you can see behind us and the, i know you're a music guy too uh do you remember what the first concert you ever attended i do uh, first concert was uh, Our Lady Peace. So they're a, uh, a Canadian band. A lot of people probably aren't even familiar with them. But uh, I love their first album uh, with uh, Naveed on it. That was yeah. insane. There were so many good songs on that. And then they had just came out with their uh, second album, um, Clumsy, that had their big song that was Superman's Dead. And uh, yeah. I was just obsessed with it. And I actually probably ended up seeing Our Lady Peace, I think, like five times throughout my, my life i was really into like that genre of of music at that at that age and at that time when i first started going to concerts i think i was in grade eight when, when that happened but yeah, yeah. Fir- <clears throat> was that was that like uh mid late 90s if i remember correctly probably mid mid late 90s yeah yeah okay yeah I'm I, I was working no i wasn't working tower records back then but i i do remember when they first came out uh do you remember the first album you bought was that Our Lady of Peace too? No, first album I got was actually the um, the Terminator Two soundtrack. So oh. obsessed with uh, with Guns N' Roses and uh, that song "You Could Be Mine." So that, that was the very first album uh, I had. But yeah, it was it was, it was awesome. I, I did, remember. did you get to see Guns N' Roses on the this tour? This I saw time? them uh, about five years ago. They came to to uh, Toronto, and yeah. uh, it, was, it was amazing. Yeah, they were they were great on stage, and uh, I loved every minute of it. So I went. I saw them every tour, and I uh, since I got back, but I went to the very first concert. Uh, first of all, when, when Axel fell off the stage at the Troubadour, broke his leg. Then the first concert was in Vegas at their new arena, and. Uh, 
they're always late, notoriously. So we waited for like two hours. Alice and Chains open up for them. And he came out. He had two nurses that were like hot nurses that walked him out. And he sat on the throne and he sang the entire concert on this chair, on this throne. And then throughout the concert, the backdrop that said that Guns N' Roses on the throne started falling down and it said Foo Fighters. And he, and he thanked Dave Grohl, gave him his throne to perform and do his concert, sitting down with his leg up in the air because Dave Grohl did the same thing. So That's was, incredible. Yeah, incredible. And, and Dave Grohl, I think, uh, I think it was him came up recently um, just because of what happened at the uh, Astroworld um, concert. I think there was a clip of him recently when there was some kind of uh, you know danger going on in the concert. And I think he, he stopped the show. But everyone seems to love you know Dave Grohl. And like he's so, so talented. I mean, he seems like he can play. Well, not seems like he can play every instrument. You know, any yeah. great voice. And he just seems like he's you know, a super grounded guy. So I just saw he wrote a book. And uh, I just went to um, the Ford Theater in LA, which is a small amphitheater. And he performed his book. So he gave us all a copy of his book and he talked about everything. It was so interesting the way he did it. It's not only him on stage talking, but what he would do is he would play a clip of a band. Scream was the band that, that he wanted to be in. And he actually ended up being in the band, but it was his favorite band. And he set up pillows on the floor and he like set up this room and he would play the pillows like the drums. And that's how he learned how to play the drums, listen to Scream albums. And then Scream came to him, asked him to be a drummer. Super, super down-to-earth guy. Uh, so we know one of the people in, uh, in the Foo Fighters, and he puts on a show. Um, he used it pre-COVID in a studio. And Dave, last time we went, uh, he was uh, barbecuing for everybody. Coming up, like he was cooking for everybody, talking to everybody. Like Super, super down-to-earth, really, really nice guy. So, yeah, so whatever you heard is absolutely true. That's awesome. I would have loved that that experience and, and listening to him uh, talk about his book. Very, very okay. cool. Yeah, come to LA. We'll hang out for sure. I go to shows all the time. Um, all right. What has cannabis meant in your life? Um, well, it's it's meant a lot of things because, I mean, it means something to me personally and it means something to me uh, professionally. So, you know, I'm still, you know, a cannabis user. Um, you know, I definitely use a little bit every night before, before I go to sleep. And, uh, I use a, you know, CBD occasionally in the day. Um, I don't find I use it every day, but, uh, you know, I definitely still, still like it. Um, and, you know, on a, a professional basis, um, and, you know, on to, on a personal basis, like, you know, using it still a little bit, like not that often, but like recreationally on, on the, on the weekends. And, you know, I even use it sometimes before I work out and before I run and I, I find it's, it's awesome. And, um, and, uh, you know, it makes, makes everything better in, in a lot of ways, you know, it can make watching TV better. It can make your food taste better. You know, uh, it can make your love taste, you know, feel better. I mean, it makes everything better. Uh, so, you know, it means a lot to me personally. And then professionally, like, you know, I've kind of, um, you know, even though I do other, other medicines, and practice other medicines and prescribe them, you know, people kind of know me mostly for cannabis and I'm totally okay with that. And, and I'm proud of that, you know? So, um, you know, I feel that it's, it's really helped a lot of my patients. And uh, it's also too, like we kind of mentioned, like, 
you know, maybe if I wasn't into cannabis so much, I wouldn't have opened my my eyes, you know, and ears to you know psilocybin. You know, yeah. so uh, it means a lot to me personally. Uh, it still means a lot to me personally. Um, you know, I still have lots of good memories of using you know cannabis with my friends when I was younger, and uh, you know, I cherish you know those those, those memories. We were just kind of laughing and having fun. And, um, you know, absolutely. I've met so many cool people in the cannabis industry. I mean, maybe we, we wouldn't be chatting today if it wasn't for cannabis, you know? So, there you go. um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's meant a lot to me and it's helped a lot of my patients. And I'm just really looking forward to, you know, the, the more research that's coming out and getting into the other, you know, cannabinoids. I know we didn't talk about too much, you know, about, um, you know, the other cannabinoids like CBN yeah. and CBG and, THCV, if that ever comes, you know, commercially available. But you know, I'm super excited about about uh, what cannabis holds for, for the future. Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> and you did mention uh, Dr. Ethan Russo, so uh, he's on our advisory board. And we just published a study uh, with uh, Ethan. But uh, one of the things I want to mention, you mentioned another cannabinoid, and uh, not to go deep into it, but just because I just came back from the Canna Pharma event. Uh, so Dr. Ethan Russo and Dr. Ziva Cooper just published a study on CBG and an antispasmatic. So we're actually starting to study these individual components, but also a reminder, and Ethan talked about this too, that the constituents, the other minor cannabinoids supporting that and the terpenes also play a role uh, as uh, we're looking at the individual components, but the the terpene uh, components in those constituents uh, make a difference as well. So whether we get to this uh, level where <laughs> pharmaceuticals focus on, uh, you know, epidiolex, but it's going to be a really, really difficult uh, road for us to be able to say it's the entourage, it's the plant itself. But I think if we have a primary cannabinoid with supporting minors and supporting terpenes, maybe there's a nutraceutical approach to this, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big, big believer in, in terpenes and I use, you know, uh, terpenes as well myself, like, like pure terpenes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like, you know, they do make a difference. You just need to kind of uh, know, you know, which cannabinoids pair west with, with, with which terpenes and, you know, why yeah. you're using them. Because, you know, you can use something like, you know, myrcene to, to pair with some THC at night um, and that can really help you, you know, f- fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, some people find like things like, linalool and, and pinene to be you know really effective in the day and, and, and find them to be bear, better paired with, with CBD in combination with the THC. So it kind of depends upon, you know, uh, the person and, yeah. uh, and, and what they're kind of looking for. If there was only a DNA test that you can take to do that, I wonder. Maybe, yeah, uh, only, yeah, only, only, right? <laughs> I have to pick you up on that. I want to do your test. I got you, man, for sure. I, like I said, absolutely. All right, so final question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. My room growing up. Okay, so um, I had two rooms. Like, so first, my first maybe ten or twelve years of my life, I shared my room with uh, with my brother, um, and uh, our room was um, you know just kind of big enough for like two beds, I guess, and a dresser, so, so to speak. Uh, I definitely had. Um, a lot of hockey posters and stuff plastered around my walls. So, you know, I was, uh, uh, I played a lot of hockey. I loved hockey when I, when I was younger and not that I don't love it now. I just don't follow it, um, as much. And I had, and I used, I was still playing until 
a few years ago, but then uh, I, I quit just because you know I'm I'm really into into MMA and and I so I kind of you know do do that instead of it. Um, and then my second room that I had uh, was downstairs in the basement, and uh, that was the tiniest room I think I could ever imagine, where it was basically just enough room for a single bed and a dresser. And uh, I think in that room, as I got older, I had a few pictures of Eminem and a few more uh, rappers on the wall. Uh, so maybe a little bit less of the hockey, a little bit more in, into the rap scene. There and, you go. Uh, always had, you know, uh, nice roots. I actually, I was, I've been listening to, um, so you probably know who, who Logic is. And uh, so he had, obviously, so he had that song, you know, Wu-Tang Forever came out like three years ago. It's like an eight minute song. I've just been. You, you know, what's funny. You said that. So I was I was driving somewhere and there was a sign. It said COVID is temporary, but Wu-Tang is forever. I'm like, yes, I love that. Man. <laughs> it was the best. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. I was like, I want to get that. I'm put it in my house. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. I've uh, never seen any of that, those guys in concert, but I would like to for sure. Oh, I just, I went, well, pre-COVID, I went to the, uh, the 20, I think it was the 25th anniversary of 36 Chambers. And uh, they all came out, they played, and they brought Redman to do o- ODB's parts. So okay, was, very cool. Yeah, it, was, it was great. Yeah, it was very great. cool. Who's your favorite Wu-Tang member? Ah, oh, man. It, it, de- it depends. Because for flow, I would say probably, probably Raekwon for flow. But you got to go with RZA because it's he's the brains. He put everything together. Even though the one that really, the one that's most memorable is ODB. So I, I don't know. It's really really hard to gauge. There's a show on Hulu. I don't know if you ever watched it. That he's got a he's got a show like the Wu Tang show. Uh, okay, cool. Talk about that. Well, so I, have, cool. I haven't, but I'm, I'm sure I enjoy it. So appreciate yeah. you. Who's, who's I don't know them, but when I went to Summit in 2017, I think it was RZA. RZA. It was basically a kung fu movie. Yeah, it was RZA. And then RZA just did the score for it. Yeah, he did. It's it's the uh, man with the iron fist. I think that's what it was called. Yeah, and he he was the character in it too. And then he got his hand chopped off, and he. He, or hands, both his hands chopped off, and he made himself iron hands. So you can everybody can look that up. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. But he did the score for it too. I, I think you're asking who my favorite one. My, I mean, I'm kind of, uh, I guess I'm a pretty commercial on, on this in some ways. I like Method Man the best. You know, I, I always have, and I love his solo <laughs> stuff too, like his yeah. Takao album, like that song, Release Your Delph. Like I don't know how many times I've listened to that song, but. I love that song and uh, I love a lot of the features that he does too. Like he's, he's still awesome. He's, he's such a good rapper and he's, just, yeah, I agree with you. And he's like, when he's, when he's rapping, like I find that like, you don't need to ask like, Oh, who is that? It's like when it's meth man, it's like, you know, you know, you know, his voice, you, you know, it, you know, so yeah. um, he's always been my favorite. You know what? I, I, I agree. I, I think the distinctive voice makes it, and his flow is great. And if, if you watch that show on, on the Wu Tang Clan, like Meth, so the uh, the RZA had a, a record contract under a different name before, and he was a different uh, uh, rapper. And then Meth also had one, and they were they sort of built the the group around Meth, 
even though each one of them had an individual success, but he was the one that was uh, all the labels wanted to sign and then Riz uh, got him. So you, you'll see. But I agree with you. He's a super, super talented guy. Yeah. Ghostface, probably close second, but. Ghostface, great too. So a, one, one last story now, I'll, I'll let you go. But when I used to have dispensaries uh, back in the day, we, they used to be called Kush Kingdom. And we were the exclusive home of Corrupt Kush and Method Man's Blackout OG. So meth, uh, meth, uh, we had, we carried the exclusive strain of uh, Method Man at the time. So he, he's really cool. <laughs> That's sick. Yeah, the, I forget the corrupt song I used to be obsessed with. Um, the the funny thing about corrupt, he's like West Coast, West Coast, all the way through. He is the West Coast guy, but he's actually from Pennsylvania. Really? So, <laughs> yeah. So he's a he's a PA guy that uh, represents the West Coast, but maybe he doesn't want people to know that. But super nice guy too. Something um, boogie is it? I don't know. I'll I'll find it. I'll find it. Well, space cool. boogie. Space. Oh yeah, space boogie. <laughs> I think he had, I think he had sugar free. I, I, I can talk about these stories forever because I was at Daz Dillinger's house uh, once <laughs> in in Compton. He goes, I live in Compton. I'm like, all right, cool. So we all went and I'm, I'm in Compton, but his house in Compton is not like a house in Compton. It's like a block. <laughs> That's how big his house was. So I'm like, yeah, you're in Compton. I get it, but you're not like in Compton. So. <laughs> like, okay. You're, you're giving back. I get it. But uh, Dr. Mike, where can people find you? Where can people learn more about you? Uh, where can they contact you? Sure. So I have a website, uh, MikeHerdMD.com. But, uh, you know, these days, of course, everyone's all over social media. So that's where you'll probably find me. Uh, so I'm at Dr. Mike Hart. So it's D-R-M-I-K-E-H-A-R-T. And I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, I haven't gotten into TikTok yet, but maybe I'll change that soon. Let's do it. Let's do some TikToks. That'd be fun. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Super informative and fun, man. So, um, I'm looking forward to uh, you taking the kit. When you do the test, I'll go over your results. I'd love to get your feedback on it too. Awesome. Well, super appreciate you, uh, you know, having me on your show and very nice to meet you as well, Kim. And uh, yeah, I'd like to have you on my show too. So you got it, brother. I'll, I'll, I'll hit you an email and uh, we'll chat again soon, brother. You got it, man. All right. Take care. Bye. Right, good on guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects Network.